Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. So, I burst out laughing so loudly that everyone in the room was now looking at me. That is not an uncommon thing for me to say. If you know me, if you've been around me, you know I am a very energetic laughter, laugher, if you, if you will. I come from a long line of people that laugh very loudly, usually at very inappropriate times. So I'm in Trader Joe's about three weeks ago, and there is this kid, nine or ten years old, and man, he is just the worst. Like, he was just being a little jerk. And before you'd be like, don't call a kid being a jerk, I'm like, look, I'm a parent. Every parent knows this. They're little humans. They have the potential to bring such joy and wonder, and sometimes you're like, ah, oh, you're just a little, Argh. and this kid was being that kid. He was yelling and cussing at his mom up and down because she wouldn't buy him cookies. He saw a dad buy his daughter cookies, and so this kid was just ticked because his mom said no, and this mom, God love her, she was doing everything in the parental handbook to, to de-escalate the situation. She was doing like soft tones, now honey, you know, she was doing that, let's reframe the situation, just because someone else gets this doesn't always mean, she's starting to lay boundaries, if you do this, then this is going to happen, and the kid just keeps amping up, she's doing her best, and the kid is just not relenting, and he begins grabbing things out of her grocery cart, and throwing it on the ground. He grabs the loaf of bread, he grabs the apples, bananas, strawberries, a bag of cashews, a bag of cheese, and then it happens. And so help me, it was like a cartoon. It was like watching Mario Kart. The kids stepped on the bananas. And you know what happens when you step on bananas, right? We've all seen it in cartoons. They squish, they make that sound, and it becomes slippery. And he stepped on it, and then he stepped on it again, and out go his feet from underneath him, and he just falls so hard on his butt, and I immediately burst out into laughter so loudly <laughs> that everyone in the Trader Joe's produce section was now staring at me, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I probably need to apologize. And there's this thing, um, if you've been around parents enough, or if you, if you are a parent, you know we can communicate with each other with just using our face expressions, right? Like, like we just get each other, right? And I look at her just with so much remorse, and she has this smirk on her face and, like, gives me almost a little wink like, nah, brah, you're good. Like, <laughs> I want to laugh too, but I'm the mom, and I can't. But I was just, I was just so happy that he fell, which sounds terrible, right? But there's, there's this thing inside of me where I want people to get what I think is coming to them. If I'm driving on the freeway or the highway, what we call it on the East Coast, um, and someone's tailgating me, and then they whip around me and flip me off, and a few miles down the road, I see they got pulled over. <sighs> what a feeling. <laughs> the rush of endorphins as I go, ha-ha, sucker, you know, and drive by, like, it's just there. There's this thing that exists. And, and I know that it exists in most of us, right? Like we want to see people get their comeuppance. We want to see people get what we think they deserve. And we might call it fairness. We might call it justice. We might call it punishment or even revenge. But there's just this, this aspect of our humanity where we want a level playing field, 
where if we believe someone has done something wrong or if we don't like someone, we want them to suffer the consequences of, of whatever action they are doing, right? As we've been going through the book of Jonah over these last three weeks, um, this idea of comeuppance, this idea of uh, someone getting what they deserve just anchors Jonah's heart. He is so angry. He is so salty. He is so bitter. And we get to this last chapter, chapter 4, that oftentimes is missed. It's, it's honestly not even read that much. It's not talked about that much because it doesn't seem to fit. It feels like this weird epilogue. And in this last chapter, I really think the curtains are drawn back and we get to see what the book of Jonah is all about. So let's, let's recap real quick. Jonah is a prophet, meaning he's been tasked by God to go and spread the truth and the reality of Yahweh, the living God. God tells him to go to Nineveh, and Jonah is like, no, I don't want to. I'm not going to do it. Because Nineveh was filled with people that Jonah looked at as his enemies. They did awful, awful, awful things. And Jonah's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to go there. And so he runs away and he gets on a ship with some pagan sailors. God sends a storm. They wake up Jonah. And Jonah's like, you know what? You might as well throw me overboard because I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. The sailors do. Suddenly the storm's calm and, and the sailors see the power of God. And their lives begin to change because they are getting in contact with the reality of the living God. Jonah gets eaten by a, by a fish. Maybe a whale, we don't know. He prays. Three days later, he gets puked out. God again says, hey, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, oh, fine, all right, I'll go. I guess I'll go. I'll do the bare minimum. And so he goes and he walks around the, the city of Nineveh, and he says one sentence over and over again, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And much to the shock and dismay of Jonah, the Ninevites believe what Jonah is saying. And they begin to respond, and they dress themselves and their animals for some reason in sackcloth, and their lives begin to change because they come into contact with a living God. There's this closure to the story. In Jonah 1, 2, and 3, we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, it's, just, it's a perfect encapsulated story. And then we get to chapter 4. And before we get into chapter 4, I just want to read the very last verse of chapter 3. It says, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, when God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them, so he, he did not do it. And then we pick up immediately with chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What else is new? And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled Tarshish, since I knew, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. I mean, dramatic much, really? Just so much emotion and anger. And catch this, in verse 2, what Jonah is doing is he's using God's own description, a description of himself that we read in the book of Exodus against God. He's using it as an insult I know that you're gracious. I know that you're a compassionate God. I know you're slow to anger and abundant in mercy. That's why I ran away. Jonah didn't flee Nineveh because he was scared of what would happen to him. He fled Nineveh. He disobeyed God. He ignored God and ran away because he didn't want God to be God. He didn't want God to actually show mercy and Jonah knew he would, and it made him ticked off. And it's easy, I think, for us in the 21st century to read that and go, man, what's wrong with this dude? But, I mean, honestly, don't we do that too? Right? Like, 
I had a conversation this week. I was, I was uh, talking to, uh, with someone about my sermon, and we were talking about what does it look like to pray for your enemies? And they said these words. They said, I, why would I want to pray for my enemies? <laughs> I don't want to pray for my enemies, because if I pray for my enemies, what if God softens my heart? I don't want to have my, so- my heart softened towards them. And then they said, or maybe my heart doesn't soften, but what if they come to know God? Like, then I have to be in heaven with them for the rest of my life? Like, I don't want that. To which my response was, do you, do you hear yourself right now <laughs> talking to a pastor about a sermon? <laughs> but we do that. We, we say some form of that often. Our, our, our anger, our bitterness, our frustration with people that we have made into our enemies oftentimes is far more important to us than what God is actually calling us to do or how he is calling us to live. Verse 4, but the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? And I love the way that's, that's worded. Another way you could read that is, do you have the right to be angry? There's always a lot of reasons we could think of to be angry, right? And God is, 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 is just calling Jonah on the carpet. Do you actually have a good reason? Do you have a right? And Jonah doesn't answer. Jonah stonewalls. Verse 5, then Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Essentially, Jonah is setting up himself a, a nice little comfortable place so that he could be a spectator, so that he can watch with the implications that he is hoping that God will change his mind and will still destroy Nineveh. He wants to see his enemies destroyed so much that he is willing to wait and hope that the God who he knows is merciful will not be merciful and instead destroy them all. So the Lord designated a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to relieve him of his discomfort. And y'all, Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. He was so happy. He was just a happy little plant parent. This is the, literally, this is the only time we see Jonah happy in the entire story. He wasn't happy that he was puked out of a fish, that he was still alive. Nope, because he had to go to Nineveh. But he has a plant. So now, he's happy. God designates a worm, verse 7. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. Uh Uh-oh. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all of his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Plant parents, am I right? Which, side note, plant parents, if you're in here, I love you, I do. You do know that plants aren't the same thing as humans, right? I just want to make sure we're clear, because sometimes you guys are like, oh, my little baby, and it's like, it's like a seed, like, calm down. Jonah is displaying so many big emotions, so much so that he can't discern fact over feeling. A few weeks back, I talked about how emotions in of themselves are not bad things, right? They help us experience the world. They help us communicate. We, we, we learn things from our emotions. But when we just go off of what our feelings are, that usually leads us to really dire situations and leads us to some pretty awful conclusions in our lives. But when we can get to a place where we can kind of work through our emotions to where we can see what they're actually communicating to us and find what the fact is over feeling, it enables us to live in a way that is much more free instead of being trapped in a cage. Here we see Jonah doing the opposite of that. Instead of working through the emotions 
Instead of identifying what they're really saying, he's acting like a, a, a spoiled kid, digging in his heels, crossing his arms in a huff, and just allowing the big emotions to rule everything. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. So Jonah, you cared deeply about something. You cared deeply about something that you had no hand in, but you benefited from. So Jonah, let's just say for the sake of argument that your big emotions around this plant are warranted. And you know, just for kicks and giggles, allow me to ask you a question. Should I not, as the God of all creation, be able to have the same kind of emotion and concern and care for something a little more significant than your comfort? I don't know, like an entire city and future generations. And that's how it ends. That's how the book of Jonah ends. With verse 11, God asking a question. Should I not also have the compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left as well as many animals? That's it. That's how it ends. The entire story ends in this nebulous place. We don't get the takeaways. We don't get the main point. We don't get any of that. We're just left with this, okay, so what now? Does God take Jonah back and make him relive this over and over and over again like Groundhog Day until he gets it right? I don't know. It's not like a Marvel movie where at the end of the movie it says Jonah will return and Jonah too and even bigger fish. No, it doesn't do that. What it does is it ends like The Sopranos ended with the story cutting to black mid-scene. Why though? Why? Asking the question why is one of the most important functions of life. Why? What's the point? Why end the story this way? It's pretty clear that Jonah wants to see punishment. It's clear that he wants to see his enemies be taken down. It's pretty obvious that his obsession, that his bitterness and his anger have been nurtured and protected to the point that that is what he cares about the most. But in chapter 4, the curtains begin to be pulled back a little bit for us. And we get to see what the book of Jonah is actually about. Because the book of Jonah really isn't about Jonah. First and foremost, it's about God and his unrelenting grace and mercy. And secondly, the book of Jonah is about us. And on an even more specific level, the people of God. Anyone in here willing to say they like Doctor Who? Am I the only one? Okay, thanks. There's like two of us. We're going to start a fan club. I'm a big fan of Doctor Who. If you don't know what Doctor Who is, it's a long-standing British sci-fi show. It follows the Time Lord who's called the Doctor. He travels around in an old British blue uh, police box. The Doctor always has a companion with him. It's just a regular person that travels with him. And that companion has always served a very important function for us, the viewers. The companion serves as the person that we can see ourselves in, that we connect with that we identify with. Throughout good literature and TV and film, there are always characters to a story, whether it's a true story or a made-up story. But ultimately, the reason the story is being told is not necessarily to highlight the person, but to highlight the human condition. It's why we connect with stories. Good stories will hold up a mirror to ourselves. They will inspire us. They will challenge us. They will, they will make us angry. And sometimes they could even bring healing. God uses the story of Jonah to hold up a big old mirror to ourselves to point out that, yeah, Jonah is bitter. 
Jonah is angry, and he is so hard-hearted. But you know who else is? You. The title of this series, Antihero, has always been a bit tongue-in-cheek for us on staff, and some of you know this. Um, It's named after a Taylor Swift song. Now, I don't know if you know who Taylor Swift is. She's a new and upcoming artist. She's brand new. I mean, get on on the ground floor. I think she has like one album or something out. Um, Also, her fans are crazy. (laughs) Um, They will come for you, so I need to be very careful what I say next. She has this song, Antihero, off her latest album, and she kicks it off with this line, I have this thing where I get older but never wiser. And I'm like, same girl. And you listen to the lyrics of of the verses and you go, there's no way this is going to be played on radio. This is not like a radio-friendly song that people are just going to listen to and and kind of embrace. And it all leads to this almost comically sounding chorus where she sings, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Now this song has become one of her most popular songs of all time. And it makes no sense. When you, if you're on social media, if you're on Instagram, Reels, anything like that, TikTok, you see people using this song over and over and over again to, to call themselves out in recognition that they are part of the problem. Because I think there is something intrinsic to us that we know deep down, even though we're not always willing to admit it, that we are part of the problem. I don't think it's lost on any of us that we can be our own worst enemies. I don't think it's lost on any of us how we can avoid looking at the mirror that God holds up to us, particularly in his word. When you look at the book of Jonah, we see pictures of racism, bigotry, nationalism. We see the idea of pride and what that ultimately leads to. We're reminded of the greatest commandments of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We see selfishness as well as God's unrelenting pursuit of people. The idea of obedience and doing what God has called you to do, being who God has actually called you to be. And covering it all is the inescapable reality of God's mercy and grace. Now, if we're honest, I think we all know how easy it is for us to set ourselves up in a very comfortable place that allow us to be spectators, that allow us to call out all the different things that we don't like about the world, about the people around us, or the people in our lives. And we'll take every opportunity to tell others, anyone who will listen, why one person or a group of people aren't worthy of time, respect, dignity, or grace. And some of us will do this very directly, and it's very clear, and a lot of us will do this pretty passive-aggressively. And I think we do this, I think we do this because when people become our enemies, for whatever reason that may be, when people become our enemies, something inside of us clicks. And all we can think about is when are they going to be taken down? When are they going to be shown as a fraud? When are they going to have to deal with the consequences? And when we begin to think of people as our enemies, what happens is that we slowly, over time, begin to strip away all of their humanity. When we look at people as our enemies, we we start to strip away the imago Dei, those fingerprints of God that says, 
whether you like them or not, they are still God's creation. And in its place, we distill them down to a single label that we can rally our hurt, bitterness, and fear around. For a time, I was involved in prison ministry in Jefferson City, Missouri, particularly the Protective Custody Unit, PCU. What that means is that if, if a guy was in the PCU, they were in a jail cell by themselves for 23 hours a day, and if they were lucky, they would have one hour out in a small portion of the yard. The reason they're in the PCU is because they're either a danger to themselves or someone is a danger to them. When you go into the prison in Jefferson City, Missouri, you have to go through 12 different very large metal gates to even get into where the PCU is. These guys aren't allowed out of their cells unless there's some prison ministry people there and then they can come for a Bible study or a, a worship service. And so a lot of them take that opportunity because they finally get that, that chance for social interaction. They give you all this training when you go in. They say, don't sit, you know, unless your back is against a wall, because if your back's not against a wall, you're an open target. Don't ask them what they're in for. Don't ask them if they did it. If they ask you to talk to someone outside of this place, you tell us, and we will remove you from the situation. They give you all these rules. So obviously, my entire body was sweating when I was walking down these halls, because anxiety just kicked in. And when I'm anxious, I sweat, just wet. And I'm freaking out because I don't even want to be there. The only reason I got involved in prison ministry is because my brother had been in prison most of my adolescent and early adult life, and I hated my brother. And I felt God continuing to tell me, you need to have empathy for your brother. And I fought it because I said, no, I don't want to. And then one of my mentors said, hey, why don't you come with us um, and be a part of the prison ministry team? And I knew God wanted me to go. And if you read my journal from the night before that very first time I went in there, I use words like animals, monsters, trash. And now I'm in this room in a worship service with convicts that I don't know what they're in there for, and I feel so uncomfortable. The service ends, and we break off into small groups, and it's me and two other guys. We introduce ourselves, and without even thinking, I immediately go, so what are you in for? Also, my back's not against a wall. I do everything wrong <laughs> because I'm so like, well, I don't know what to do. <clears throat> Without skipping a beat, they both say murder. And I'm like, okay, this is how it ends. <laughs> One of the inmates looks at me and tells I'm, can tell I'm flustered. And he goes, well, we're supposed to talk about the message, so why don't we do that? And he kind of takes control of the situation and, and guides the conversation. And the message was about the power of stories. And so these two men began to share their stories. And something amazing happens when you sit in a place of humility and curiosity with people who share their stories. When you sit face-to-face -face with someone, not online, not through a text message, but you actually sit face-to-face -face in, in, in a space of humility and curiosity. Something amazing happens. As these men began to tell their stories, I began to hear my own story in theirs. The one gentleman in particular who was kind of leading the conversation, as he talked about his childhood and adolescence, it was so eerily similar to mine that I was shocked at how just a few decisions really separated us. Now, their stories don't take away the decisions that they made. Their stories don't take away the pain and the hurt that they caused for individuals or communities, potentially for generations to come. 
But what I realized in that moment, in that moment with those two men, was that they were much more than the simple label that I put them on. But that's what we do. We'll strip people down to a simple label to rally our hurt and our bitterness. And those labels can sound different for different people. They're a liar. They're illegal. They're an addict. They're a murderer. They're a narcissist. They are the patriarchy. They're a turf. They're toxic. They're racist. They're trans. They're Christian. They're Republican. They're Democrat. They're gossip. They're fake. They're poor. They're rich. The list of labels that we come up with that we distill people down to is infinite because our ability, our ability for insecurity and arrogance is infinite. Our ability to feel hurt and fear is infinite. We relegate a person or a group to a label and ignore the fact that they have stories and experiences all their own. We'll set ourselves up above as the hero or the victim, which many at times may be true. But often in that process, we don't even realize that we begin to come into this belief that somehow we are better than. I'm better than you. I'm certainly better than them. And when we begin to believe that, when that becomes the story that we are telling ourselves, we begin to miss the most obvious and fundamental truths that we see in Scripture, one of which is the overarching theme of Jonah and one of the through lines of the entire Bible, and that's that grace changes everything. There, there are a few books that I believe every follower of Christ should not only read, but read again on a, on a fairly regular basis. One of those books is Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. There's so much good stuff in there. One of the things that he says is the world thirsts for grace. When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. I've watched this happen. Odds are you have watched this happen. There's a reason that so many people are drawn to a show like Ted Lasso, Right? Ted Lasso is just this unassuming guy who seems to have this just joyful spirit. But really, Ted Lasso, what it is, is a guy continually offering grace and mercy, and you watch the effect of how it changes everyone around him. Grace changes people. Grace puts a stop to the constant warring, to the constant othering, to the constant belief that we know better, that we are better. On June 17th, 2015, Dylan Roof was welcomed into a Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And towards the end of that Bible study, as they began to pray, he pulled out a gun and over the course of six minutes murdered nine people. We all remember that. We remember how quickly the news spread how we were all shocked that not just another mass shooting had happened, but that it had happened in a place that's supposed to be so safe, a church, a Bible study. This self-proclaimed white supremacist said he had to kill them because they were taking over the country and they had to go. And in those next 48 hours, everyone began to fight with one another about what to do, what was the right response. People were hurting. People were looking for care. People were looking for compassion. People wanted to pray. People wanted to show up. And instead, we just kept missing each other. And more and more arguments were happening. And then suddenly, two days later, we, many of us watched as on social media when people never have uh, enough to say, suddenly fell silent. We watched as news reporters wept openly on national TV as one by one, the relatives of the victims 
who were killed in that shooting stood up and said, I forgive you. One by one. They didn't have to do that. Anthony Thompson, grandson of one of the victims, said, we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so we can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you'll be okay. Ruth's own family, in their first public statement, said, we all have been touched by the moving words from the victims' families, offering God's forgiveness in love and in the face of such a horrible, horrible suffering. These individuals were motivated by their faith. They recognized the grace that they had received and what they were called to do and offered forgiveness to this man who murdered their grandmothers, grandfathers, and sons. And to this day, when people talk about what happened, they can't talk about what happened without also talking about this unbelievable display of grace. In November 1987, Gordon Wilson and his daughter Marie, a 20-year-old nurse, were attending a Remembrance Day service in Enniskill in Northern Ireland. The pair were buried under rubble by a bomb detonated by the IRA. Wilson survived, but Marie died from her injuries. A lot of us have heard this story. In an interview with the BBC hours later, Wilson described with anguish his last conversation with his daughter and his feelings towards her killer. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me. And those were the last words I ever heard her say. And then to the astonishment of the listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet. And now she's dead. She's in heaven. And I know we will meet again. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. Gordon Wilson went on to become a touch point for unity, who was motivated by his faith because he himself had experienced the life-changing reality of grace and he wanted to lead out with that, so much so that it left an entire nation silent. Historian Jonathan Barden recounts, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. That man who I sat next to in the PCU who had such a similar story to my own told me about the letter that he had received from the mother of the person that he killed. And in it, she was very direct about her pain and her anger and her frustration at him for what he had done and the reality of what her life was going to be. And at the end, she said, but I forgive you. Christ has forgiven me, and I know I need to offer you that same grace. I hope that you will turn your life to him, because it's never too late. And he did. When I had met him, the reason he was so calm and collected is he was already the inmate chaplain. Everyone referred to him as elder. On one of my last visits to that prison, he and I were talking, and he shared with me, I don't, I don't always do what's right. I, I get, it's so easy to become hopeless in this place, and I struggle with anger. And he goes, but I'm reminded constantly, I keep that letter handy to be reminded that I was shown grace 
and that God's grace is true. And now I have this opportunity with all these men to show God as they deal with their consequences in such a hopeless place. I know these are big examples, but there are countless everyday interactions of grace that can change the trajectory of a person's life. But so often, so often it seems that we would rather nurture our bitterness and justify our anger than to offer grace. We live in an age where grace seems to be diminishing, and in its place are beliefs like you either agree with all of me or none of me, or you're a threat to the fabric of society, or simply you're one of those people. In this age of stickers, patches, flags, social media posts, and YouTube channels, we signal to one group or another that we're either safe or we're going to fight. To one group we say we're with you, and the other we celebrate in their destruction. And many times we use these things, we start using these things out of a place of altruism because we, we want to show up for people, and we don't even realize that over time we begin to strip away the humanity We begin to set ourselves up in a position above other people. And we begin to believe that we are better than. And pretty soon, all those people simply become another group that we get to consider those people. Grace in concept, it's not difficult to understand. It is receiving or giving of something that is undeserved, but in practicality, it's hard, right? Grace, ultimately, is going out of our way to live like Jesus. And, and honestly, isn't that why we're here? <laughs> isn't that why the church exists? Isn't that why we, why we gather on Sunday mornings or why we invest in families or we do small groups or we're trying to find ways to bless and encourage and show up for our community and in the world because we're wanting to live like Jesus? We're wanting to be disciples of Jesus because that's what we're called to. We're called to be the apprentice of Christ, to pick up our cross daily and follow him, which means that nurturing our bitterness and protecting our anger is not the thing that our focus should be put on. We're called to give compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and love to people even if they may not like us, even if they don't appreciate it, even if they never return the favor, even if they threaten you. And that's hard. It's hard. In the book of Jonah, we see time and time again God showing grace. We see grace that is offered to the sailors. We see grace offered to Jonah. We see grace offered to the Ninevites. And then we see grace offered to Jonah again. And it clues us into another transformative, if not really uncomfortable truth that we see in Scripture. God loves your enemies and tells you to do the same. And we don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do when God's offer of grace and mercy includes our enemies, the people we hate, or the people who made someone we care about feel unsafe, or people that have hurt us, or people that annoy us, or people that hate us. But that's a part of the the core message of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Jesus, compassionate, abounding in love and mercy, died and rose again so that we can experience the transformative power of grace and the forgiveness of our sins. And that invitation is open to anyone willing to accept it, including your enemies. Including the ones that you've convinced yourself you're better than. 
including the ones that you're afraid of. When you look at the whole of history, time and time again, we see the people of God do some amazing things, just some incredible things. And we also see moments where the people of God just, just do the dumbest stuff. It's hard to go through a month in our country where we don't hear of another pastor who is flamed out or someone under the banner of Christianity doing something so awful and horrible that we go, that, that, that's not right. And I think when you dig underneath all that, what we find is there is this belief that somehow uh, people will start to, to believe that they, they think that somehow because of their relationship with God, somehow because of the forgiveness of their sins, that, that, they, that they hold the high ground, that they hold the moral high ground. Let me be really clear. That's not a biblical thought. That's not a biblical reality. A biblical reality is that we have all made ourselves enemies of God. A biblical reality is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we're all in need of grace. And what happens when you set yourself up on the moral high ground is this just gives you a really good perch to look down at everyone else around you. And that doesn't matter if you're Christian or not, right? If you say the words, if you believe you occupy the moral high ground, that you hold the high ground, all you're saying is you've set yourself up above and everyone else is below you. The reason Jesus is a revolutionary, the reason Christianity is different than other religions is it turns everything upside down. It's not about being exalted. It's about being lowly. It's not about being first. It's about being last. It's not about being served. It's about serving. It's not about our own adoration and doing whatever we feel like. It's about God's adoration and doing what he has called us to do. It's not about pride. It's about humility. Jesus says in Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke six twenty seven. but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who are abusive to you. And we're like, no, I'm good. As my daughter likes to say right now, um, you should go. I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's too rich for my blood. Look, this isn't me throwing stones. This is me talking to myself just as much as anyone here or watching at home. We will complain and lament about the state of our homes, of our neighborhoods, of our cities, of our country, of our churches, of our businesses. And yet so often, we lack the backbone to take a long, hard look in the mirror and see that we're part of the problem. And we're not part of the problem because we're not louder than our enemies. We're not part of the problem because we haven't passed enough legislation. We're not part of the problem because we don't have the right stickers or flags or social media channels or because we don't feel accepted or understood. We're part of the problem because we willfully, willfully choose to be hard-hearted. We willfully choose to nurture our bitterness and protect our anger we willfully say, we know better than God. The book of Jonah ends in a place that is uncomfortable. And I think it's okay for us to be uncomfortable. 
Because the truth is, you're than it does theirs. We're going to take communion here in a moment. And every week we take communion because we always want to be reminded that the grace that we have experienced, you are here whether you realize it or not because you have experienced grace. And we're going to invite you to come out the left of your aisle, to come up front, get some bread and juice, to go back into your seats, to pray and to contemplate. But in this moment of communion, as you take these emblems, reflect on just how powerful God's grace really is. And recognize you're not called to be the loudest in the room. You're not called to be in first place. You are called to be the hands and feet of Christ. No one is better than you. You are not better than anyone else. We have a shared humanity. We all carry the fingerprints of God. And what would happen? What would happen in our homes, in our schools, in our cities, in our churches, in our country, in our world? Instead of matching anger with anger, instead of, instead of matching war with war, instead of signaling to one group or another, we just became people of grace. And we let Jesus sort it out. I'm going to pray for us. And then we invite you to come up for communion. And I pray that you will search your hearts. And I pray that the Spirit of God makes you unsettled. And that we could each be brave enough to actually take a look in the mirror. Heavenly Father, thank you for your sacrifice. God, thank you for loving us so much that that we don't even know how to comprehend it. Thank you for all of those examples that we see in our lives, in Scripture, in, in, in books that we read, in TV, in our interactions of, of, of grace that leave us speechless, that remind us that we are hungry for it, that we thirst for it. God, break us free from the shackles of our own arrogance and thinking that we are better than anybody. Help us to be people of grace. Help us to point people to you. God, as we take these emblems, may we never forget your bodies that was broken for us and your blood that was spilled for us. And Lord, I do pray that your spirit move in this place, move in our hearts and our minds and our souls and make us unsettled. That we'll be willing to do the work of looking in the mirror. And instead of nurturing our bitterness and protecting our anger, Instead, we'd be willing to be your hands and feet. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.